This is the Starting Why Podcast. Here we ask entrepreneurs, actors, investors, innovative, and artists on the why. Why they are doing what they are doing, what motivates and drives them, and why can't they stop. We will start in five, four, three, two, one. Hey guys, this is Joe from Starting Why, your podcast on the mindset of entrepreneurs. Today, I have another guest. You cannot see him because this is an audio-only podcast, but he is smiling. Hey, Brand, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you? I'm doing good as well. You are here today because first, you are an entrepreneur. Secondly, I remember you have a non-for-profit on entrepreneurship, plus you are the author of a pretty interesting book on entrepreneurship. Mm. I don't mm. call myself an entrepreneur. <laughs> My nonprofit is just simply supporting the startup. I don't have a nonprofit organization, but I, I just, I guess, giving back, I support the local startup scene here in San Diego by mentoring and offering my, my services for free because startups shouldn't be paying consultants. They should be building their business. Yes. And lean entrepreneur. Boy, it's been. 10 years next year, Joe, it'll be 10 years since that book first came out. So lots of learning since then. Uh, I have a new book out uh, from November of last year called Disruption Proof. But yes, the, the lean entrepreneur uh, ideas uh, have evolved over that time. So it's pretty interesting to talk about. I think I had you as an interview guest in the very early days of mm -hmm. Startup Rate.io. So I do have some background information, but can you, for everybody who's out there, who's not on a regular basis reading the New York Times bestseller list, because apparently you've been listed there, can you tell us a little bit what lean entrepreneurship is all about, plus what it's not all about, like thinking about paying consultants. <laughs> right. Okay. So the, the cornerstone of being a lean entrepreneur is the ability to admit when you don't know. And it really runs counter to a lot of our society, which is that you have to know everything or you have to be very good at pretending that you know everything. And if you go in front of investors, you better know everything. And that's just, that's not entrepreneurship. It's that's, that's false. And so the ability to admit when you don't know is what great entrepreneurs have because that is what allows them to learn. If you know everything, then you don't have any sort of need to go learn. Whereas learning, exploring is really the heart of, of successful entrepreneurship. And so there are a number of practices that one can learn how to deploy that sort of defined, define entrepreneurial spirit, define the mindset, define this exploration mode. So things like understanding your customers deeply. It's not just about going and doing an interview or asking them what they want or what features they require, but understanding their needs and their aspirations and the environment that they're within. And it's running experiments, but really the reason why you're running experiments is to validate or invalidate your assumptions. So you have to expose what are my assumptions inside of a particular business and how can I test whether those assumptions are true? It's the ability to use data, evidence uh, to cut through biases that we have. We all have biases. It's a matter of fact, it's impossible not to have 
biases. So how can you actually build into the work the ability to cut through those biases? And then again, to work in an agile fashion. So fast, iterative, learning, you know, agile very much encompasses that. And so that's that's really at what the lean entrepreneur is about, is how to do those things. The, the first and very important question, I remember one of the toughest questions for me as a consultant as well was, how do I figure out all my cautious and subcautious assumptions going into something? How can I really make a complete list of all the assumptions going in there? I, I know that's a really tough one, right? Well, it's, you know, that sort of thing can be facilitated. It's, it's a, I, I think the key to it, like you take a, a stack of uh, sticky notes and you put one assumption per sticky note and you're trying to answer the question, what has to be true from my business for my business to be successful? Or perhaps you want to start more on the product side. And so what has to be true for my product to succeed in the market? And the trick is to not edit while you're writing. It's a brainstorming exercise. It's stream of consciousness. And you're writing or your team is writing one sticky note includes one assumption and don't edit. Don't discuss with the, the group. Just write down as many as you can. And what you'll find is that you've got a lot of sort of trivial assumptions that don't matter that much. And then a lot of other assumptions that are, are huge. And if you're, if you've been in business for a while and you've perhaps tried to raise money, the unfortunate part of raising money is that is that you get used to writing assumptions as if you know they're going to be true. Because again, the investors don't want to invest in you if you're, if you're shaky on what you know and what you don't know. But when you're, and so investment aside, when you're with yourself and with your team, you have to be honest. You have to be self-aware. You have to be tough on yourself. Do I really know if this point is true or not? And so I think that that really, that's really what gets you, what gets you going is, is just telling yourself the truth. And really what we want to do is look at it from a market perspective. So it's, it's something that's outside of your head. You know, it's an assumption that you're going to be able to get a bunch of people to download your app. It's an assumption that you're going to be able to get people to log into their app. It's a, your app. It's an assumption that you're going to be able to get them to log in every day and engage with particular features. These are all assumptions. They're all testable. And so those are the type of things that you want to start documenting. And it exists not only on the product side, but in the marketing side and in the, in the revenue model side, in the scaling side, it exists everywhere. So what you're wanting to do is build it into your business, this ability to explore and the ability to question each other respectfully in order to expose the biggest uncertainties of your business. When you've been talking, I thought, okay, and who should be on the invite list for such an assumption workshop because what ran through my mind is when you have like a steady team of now well, let's say three to five founders i really do believe that you have to have the same number of people who don't have any clue about what you're doing and that'll basically expose when you have assumptions at least that's my personal experience i think that's a great idea a matter of fact, another investment hack is, is that if somebody invests in your company, invite them to the meeting. Uh, get them into the process of admitting that they actually don't know. 
And so part of the, especially in corporate innovation, we have to spend a lot of time developing new skills in leaders because they, even more than founders, are used to expressing opinions as fact. And so we actually have to teach them how to uh, expose their own biases and their own assumptions. And so I actually think what you said is a great idea. Have somebody there that is absolutely no clue and maybe somebody who's naturally skeptical. And again, we're not really trying to break the business. We're not trying to break it down. We're not trying to be negative. It's what we're trying to do is expose what's the riskiest part of what you're trying to accomplish. And so rather than being reactive and having to respond to those things when they happen in the real world, we're trying to predict them and we're trying to test them so that we can actually prepare the business to succeed. And another personal recommendation, which was really astonishing for me is, When you invite somebody who has no relation to your business at all, but studied philosophy, they are very good in teasing out assumptions. You cannot see this, but he's really smiling. <laughs> I love that idea. Like we should just, instead of having entrepreneurs in residence, we should have philosophers in residence. There's a new business model for you, Joe. <laughs> yes, uh, I assume I would get one or two uh, students of philosophy to be there. Uh, le let me take some notes here. <laughs> That's um, when you've been talking about the lean entrepreneur, I was always having in mind that it should be something like um, required reading for everybody who is bootstrapping their business. Don't get me wrong, like now looking at, um, I think The Guardian called it a tech wreck, the big layoffs in bigger and bigger tech companies. Apparently, they have not been lean. But if you're really working on a shoestring budget, if, if you work, money comes in, money goes out. On that basis, you really have to look at your expenses. And that is something, personal experience as a bootstrapping entrepreneur, that really works well with lean entrepreneurship. Right. You know, because big companies are firing people doesn't mean that they're not lean. It means that they're buying into a recession that has been created purposely by the Fed. And so there's an opportunity to become leaner. But my experience is that most often these organizations cut into fat or cut into muscle as well as fat. And it's because they don't really know how to do it. But that's a different subject for a different time, but it does sort of lean into the definition of lean. Lean is great for bootstrappers. People without a lot of resources can't waste resources or they won't succeed. But the word lean really comes from lean manufacturing, which is how a, a number of writers describe how Toyota was building automobiles in the 50s. And so it's, you know, you're manufacturing automobiles, you're actually building plants. You're not, you're not bootstrapping. You're not, you're not trying to not spend money. What you have to do is not waste money. And so the word lean really is about wasting. And so obviously, yes, for bootstrappers, you better not waste the money that you have. You better not waste the time and the resources that are going into building your business or else you won't survive. But For well-funded startups, you ought to be lean as well. Think about a think about a uh, a small dachshund, which is a skinny little dog, or think about a Great Dane, which is actually a a skinny, lean, very big dog. So it doesn't have to do with the the size of the animal; it has to do with sort of the fat versus the muscle. 
And so you want to be a very muscular startup and then you want to grow up to be a very muscular big company. And so I think that it's important to think about lean as how do I reduce the waste in my company? How do I reduce the waste in overcoming uh, uncertainty? How do I, how do I do the, reduce the waste in executing on the business plan that I know is true, the part of the business plan that has been proven? So yeah, that's where the word lean comes from. Ah, and now the very important point, how to recognize waste spending. Yeah, it, I, it's, boy, it, the, I think boy. a lot, yeah, well, it's just really hard. I think it's hard. And, and it, I, I think about, I think about like a positive relationship between startups and investors. The investors are ones that naturally will keep a company from wasting. Well, good investors, I should say. The investors that actually want companies to scale prematurely are all about waste. They don't care about any of the value that's being created. They just want to flip their shares and make a lot of money. So putting them aside, investors naturally will try to keep a company lean because they need those dollars to go as far as possible. And so that includes all of these other resources that you're employing. But it's sort of like interesting inside of a large enterprise. The large enterprise has so much waste. It's absolutely amazing. And the difference is, is that there's nobody inside the company that understands metrics in the same way that startup investors do. And so the, the inside of a large corporate, like, so here's a good example, Joe. If you're a startup and you've built the product and the product does poorly in the marketplace and the investor goes to a, a board meeting and, and there they've got the whole C-suite there because they've performed poorly. And the investor goes to the VP of engineering and says, you know, well, the product you know, is performing poorly. And if the VP of engineering says, I was on time and under budget, so it's not my fault, you're, you're going to kick that VP of engineering out, right? But if you're inside of a large enterprise and you go to that same VP of engineering and he says, I was on time and under budget, they would go, oh, yeah, it must be something else. And the reasoning is, is because <laughs> inside of the startup, you're measuring the actual impact of the work that you're doing, not just the outcome impact, not just the result. Whereas in a large company, they're all siloed. They all have their fiefdoms. No, no, I just did my job. That must be somebody else's fault because they measure the wrong thing. And so to me, this is one of the fundamental differences between good startups with good investors and, you know, sort of the wasteful corporates is the metrics that they're tracking and the metrics that the whole C-suite, the whole team is held accountable in the startup world. I really, really have to smile here for the very si uh, simple reason. There was a story I had in mind when I asked you this question. You started with KPIs and uh, I once had a memorable exchange with the head of reporting at a big company. And he says he just stops sending out reports like the oldest report first and so on and so forth. And if it's not requested by somebody like four times the report was due, they completely stop. And that's it, such a that's great the, idea. Yeah, it's it, it's the impact, right? Yes, it's like it, it reminds me of you know back in the early days uh, of of the lean entrepreneur and whatnot. You know, we would say remove a feature if nobody complains. Keep the feature removed. I remember an entrepreneur that once shut down his business because he told me he came in on Monday and found out that his servers were down all weekend. 
and no one complained. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, tough lesson. Yeah, tough lesson. Yeah, I see. I see. The 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 good thing is, I started with my um with my own podcast. I started external uh, podcast hosting because three years in a row around Christmas well, my website just went down way mm. too much traffic and people started complaining on social media and I found the complaint so good for you so that was like yep I better fix that right so you were that was actually a little bit that was sort of a mini experiment that you ran without knowing maybe <laughs> so so basically what we have so far check your assumption get a meeting Invite a lot of philosophy students, best graduate students in philosophy. Work with a lot of post-its. Get 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 like a few truckloads for all of them. <laughs> Don't waste money. And if you want to check out if something is waste or not, stop doing it. If somebody yeah, complains, it's not wasted. That's one way of doing it. I you, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that for all people in all situations, but that's one way of doing it. And it's not just. It's not just wasting money. It's wasting time. It's wasting inspiration. It's wasting energy. It's, you know, there's a lot of waste that goes into building companies if you allow it. So you, you, you want to look beyond just the dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I just had in mind when you talked about that, um, if somebody uh, listening to this from Citigroup had the bright idea, hmm, let's get rid of, the eight, of all the ATMs for a weekend if somebody complains. <laughs> Well, yeah, that, wouldn't it be an interesting experiment on a small scale, though? It's like, which ATMs should I close down? Well, let's close down the ones that actually aren't being used. Yeah, that, 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 I, I do believe that's a troublesome idea because you have people that are not complaining. They're just using Bank of America ATMs. No, that's true. So that's when, true. when you lose customers. So is, is there a methodology to really stop doing something and be really certain that nobody complained by either writing you an email or just purchasing the service, the software of a competitor. I do believe that's very tough, isn't it? Yeah, I think that, it, it, again, all of this stuff kind of depends on what scale you're at. But and the digital world allows you to measure things pretty minutely. And, and so, it, you know, maybe it's not Maybe it's not eliminating it for all people. Maybe it's eliminating it for a cohort of people based upon a particular persona or something like that. So th there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. I, you know, I'm not, I guess I, th what the problem is, is that we, we do the opposite. And so I think that the, it's, it's sort of an extreme story we tell in order to get people to think differently. But the opposite is actually what's true. The, and the opposite being, that we employ our engineering teams to spit out feature after feature after feature after feature, regardless of whether we know those features are truly needed by customers or truly wanted or desired. And so I think that that's the practice that we're really trying to diminish is that you need to couple the value that you're creating to human beings that need that value and want that value and will pay for that value instead of just churning out more stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this 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 churning out more stuff is something I do believe a lot of companies fall into this trap, and then at one point they get the bright idea we label us it as a premium service and charge more for it. <laughs> right. 
Well, so, I mean, the, the, the part that we haven't really talked about here is understanding customers deeply. And again, I think the digital age makes it easy to never talk to customers. And we think that we can figure everything out with split testing and with adding stuff and, oh, we'll just pay, make that a premium service. I think that the successful companies are ones that understand different market segments, understand different personas, these different people that have shared need Regard, you know, forget about the demographics for a moment. It's really the shared need and looking and behaviorally, they are open to or want to address needs in particular ways. And so if one is able to define personas for your, for their startup business and think about these different cohorts of people, then they can start attaching features and different ways that they're you're creating value to those different cohorts and it makes the the data and and the and the testing way more interesting and i think way more lucrative but the way you come up with those cohorts to begin with is to go out and talk to customers to go and understand customers to go understand what their needs actually are understand why they're different from another cohort why they're behaving in different ways and again i think that you know, back in, in the lean startup days, Eric Reese and, and Steve Blank and all that, I think that we, we had a movement then of people that were actually spending time with customers. And I think that, I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering if we've, we've sort of lost that again. And so I think people go out and talk to customers, but I think that the conversations are shallow. And I think that it's like feature mongering. It's just like, well, what do you want? You know, what do you need? It's not just asking those questions. It's observation. It's, it's engaging in with human beings differently in order to understand what they truly will respond to, what their true beliefs are, what their true emotions are, what their true aspirations are. And so I think that there's a lot of great UX designers out there. I don't think that there's enough of them, especially if you're headed into mobile. I, I, it's an extraordinary world. Mobile is insane. The amount of development that has to be worked worked on based around user experience. The engineering is actually pretty easy. And so I think that we need to we need to really get back to I really think that competitive differentiation comes from customer insights, not from technology. Mm -hmm. First I found your idea pretty good to come up with different cohorts because I tend to get a, a, since I'm a startup scout, I tend to get a lot of pitch decks from startups like The people don't even know me and they send, they send their complete pitch deck to me like um, uh, that happens to me like five times a week. Yeah. Did it drive uh, you uh, crazy? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, a tiny bit. On the other hand, I have to admit that I always get really, really crazy uh, when, when I see the, the, target, the target customer because it's like always male, female between 25 and 45 college educated, right? Above average income. That's that, that. That's basically a given. So, can you give us a few like good examples how you could really generate such a cohort? Because when I was still in consulting, everybody was just uh, classifying people by income, and I talked and I told them, guys, why don't you classify them by where their wealth is coming from? An entrepreneur would need different services. Then a C-level executive talking about like liability, insurance, and so on and so forth would be something really different than somebody who inherited the money or whatever. So that that would be 
something I do believe that's kind of the same idea we both had, maybe you a little bit earlier than I had, and yours much more successful than mine. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know about all that, but I, I, I think your examples are great. I think that the, what people don't understand is that the demographics comes from marketing research when you are trying to reach a random audience of millions of people and you're already successful. So think about like big brands that are running advertisements on TV. So they break things down by demographics and they're going to run a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of different types of ads, like different theme themes, like Geico has always got like four or five different ads running because they're trying to appeal to different demographics because they've already proven that they can sell to this random audience. They can, they can already sell to all of the demographics combined. So then you look at the demographics and break it down in order to run advertisements against that in order to maximize the value that you're getting out of each of those demographics. When you're starting something new, you have none of that evidence. You don't have any idea, to be honest, about who actually wants your product. And it's not based upon demographics. So I like to think about it in terms of community. Like what communities do you belong to? And then look around in, inside your community. Are all the demographics the same? Likely no. I think going all the way back to the book, Lean Entrepreneur, we use the, the company beta brands who had built a, a pair of pants for people who bike to work. So that's a shared need. There's actually our communities that exist around people that bike to work. And so regardless of what you think of the idea, the fact is, is that it had nothing to do with demographics. It had to do with the shared need of biking to work. And so if you wanted to, you could break down the group of people that bike to work into demographics. And that might benefit you in terms of marketing and how you're going to reach out to them. But it's not what you're solving. You're solving the need. And so I think that the, the key is that you, is to come up with these different groups that have a need and think about it in terms of community. If you, if you go to people that are audio visual enthusiasts, think about the different people that are audio visual enthusiasts, hi-fi people. Um, you can go to AV forum and they've, you know, got just thousands of posts per day. It doesn't have to do with demographics. It's all over the map. It's young people with no money to old people with no money to old people with lots of money. So it's all over the map. And, and you, you can start putting together the different cohorts of people. And then that describes what your market size is, what your potential size is. It's not, you know, Googling the number of iPhone users. It's just, that's just worthless. And so I think that if people think about it in terms of what communities they themselves belong to, and that you can start to get an idea around what a cohort, what a market segment would look like. I, I actually do believe I've done something. I, I do believe we do think alike a lot, something like this, because I'm also looking to really build Startuperator.io at one day in a scalable startup idea. And basically what I did instead of just having somebody to sign up with an email, I actually asked the people to do a survey if I can help them or not. Then they just give me five or six answers. And if they want to, they can leave the, uh, their email. If they don't want, they don't have to. Little hint here, 
I can help everybody. <laughs> right. You can probably help everybody, but if you actually included in that survey the different angles that they're coming to it and in terms of help, that actually gives you all sorts of clues into what the market looks like. So the the I like that idea and I think it's also it runs counter to many entrepreneurs because most entrepreneurs want to count the vanity metric of how many people that signed up. Whereas you're actually saying, no, no, no. If I can't help you, don't sign up. So we used to call these things like high hurdle experiments. Like I only want the people that really want me. I don't mm-hmm. want the people that just kind of want me. And so if you, if you kind of want me, I'm going to put up a, a wall. And if you don't get over the wall, I'm not going to help you. But the people that actually get over the wall, now I know I've got my market segment. Now I know I've got my community, right? So it's not just counting, oh, I want as many people to get over the wall as possible. So I'm going to make the wall really small. No, no, I'm going to make the wall big because I want to actually, I want to focus in on only those that are willing to go over the wall. We, we're running pretty close to your deadline. Now. Uh, j- 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 just one more question about that. Like this hurdle, the people who are going over the hurdle, do you also think the pricing of Apple is something like this? Only the people who really want it buy the premium price, buy the premium product, pay there's the price. There's no doubt about Apple. it. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, so like, I, it's so funny to me that people like would look at Steve Jobs and go like, oh, well, he never talked to customers. That guy understood his market segment better than anybody in the world. And not only did he sell products to them, he hired them. His whole company is based upon, was based upon these people that they want the elegant product that just works. He used to say that all the time, right? Just people want stuff that just works. And the Apple products just worked and you paid a premium for it. You could always go to get the Microsoft on on Hewlett Packard computers and have to hassle with it. And those people were actually more IT related people because they had to work on their own computers. You could always go do that and it's less expensive. And Apple's saying, no, if you want the elegant design, the elegant functionality that just works consistently, you buy Apple and you're going to pay a premium for it. Yeah, when you want to be able to find the features that you really need. Yep. Yep. Ah, Brent, that would be so much more I would love to talk to you about, including your new book. Maybe we should schedule a recording for the new year for our audience. This recording was done on 12th of December 2022. And maybe we can just continue this interesting interview, like with real life examples next year. So far, I would like to thank you very, very much. We already over over your deadline. Thank you very, very much for being a guest. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and hopefully, hopefully have you back pretty soon. And we can talk about your new book and how to really get your target audience, your cohort together. Yeah, Joe, always fun to talk to you. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you too. And I would would love to come back and continue the conversation. Great. Awesome. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.